It's Friday, August 13th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, When the Stars Begin to Fall, how can a form of national solidarity help overcome racism and renew the country's promise? Scholar and former Navy commander Theodore Johnson on his new book. Then, tough questions. The government of Belarus has closed down our sister organization in the country. Vaccine misinformation is again on the rise online. And a school district in Texas bans books dealing with race and identity. Suzanne Nassel, our CEO, explores those questions in our weekly conversation. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. Theodore Johnson is a former Navy commander, White House fellow, and military professor. He now directs the fellows program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law. His debut book is When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. Theodore Johnson joins me now. Ted, welcome to the Pen Pod. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. So let's dive in. Your your book lays out an argument that we can achieve some form of racial justice um, through a greater purpose and sense of national solidarity that you argue could be modeled on how Black America has exhibited this kind of solidarity. What What is that? What is national solidarity? And how do you think it can help overcome racism? Yeah. So when I say overcome racism, uh, what I'm really talking about is mitigating the effects that racism has on people's lived experiences, their lives in, in our country. So I don't know that we can ever erase it completely, but we can certainly reduce its impact on folks' lives. And I think national solidarity is our best hope of doing so. National solidarity is when a multiracial, multiethnic group of people come together over a cause of justice or morality in order to hold the state accountable, the nation accountable for being in breach of the social contract. In other words, and particularly in um, this arena of racism, it is basically saying that racism is something that the nation has allowed to perpetuate itself and exist in our structures. And the only way we can uh, compel the nation to do more to address that structural racism is to come together, not because we want lower taxes or because we want Medicare for all, but because we recognize that as long as racism persists, that the idea the nation was founded on, that we're all created equal, that we have these unalienable rights, it cannot be achieved. And even though we've long fallen short of, of these principles, it still should serve as our guiding star. And we can never get there. We can never make another step towards it if, uh, if we allow structural racism to persist. And national solidarity, uh, again, people coming together over this cause of morality is the only way we can stick together uh, strongly enough in order to uh, compel the nation to do the right thing, which is to address the racism in our structures. Okay, so I mean, I, I get the idea. I, I wonder, though, you know, the country is so riven along racial lines, political lines, geographic lines, mask wearing lines. I mean, is solidarity possible right now? Or, or is this just sort of an optimistic vision that you're laying out here? Yeah, it's both. So I do believe solidarity is possible, but um, it is an optimistic viewpoint to believe that it's possible. Uh, So certainly if you look around the world today, look around our country and the hyper-partisanship and the political bickering and the cultural animus that's out there, um, a multiracial national solidarity seems 
impossible. But if we reflect back to last summer after George Floyd was murdered uh, during a global health pandemic that had us sequestered in our homes, an economy where the bottom was falling out and hurting uh, communities of all races and ethnicities, um, and uh, Floyd's murder happening just after Breonna Taylor was killed, after Ahmaud Arbery was killed, we essentially had a summer of solidarity last year when people across regions, religions, customs, culture, language, race, ethnicity came together for weeks on end to protest the government's unwillingness or inability, not just to stop state abuses of power that led to Floyd's murder, but also to sufficiently address the global health pandemic that we were experiencing and the economic fallout from it. And we know this, um, that this was a, a sort of a people um, dissatisfaction with government because our higher the the presidential election had the highest voter participation rate in over a century. So this was a moment where the country was united um, as a people against what government was or wasn't doing during uh, last summer. The problem is solidarity that form that formed last summer and that usually forms in moments like this tends to be too thin to endure. And what happens is you tend to get a backlash and then you get things like January 6th that are very un-American and anti-democratic when, when those folks storm the Capitol. So is it possible? Yes. Is it an optimistic outlook to, to maybe too optimistic to, uh, to think that we could get there in short order? Probably. But it is not beyond our grasp because we've seen it uh, displayed over the course of our nation's history. It's just not been strong enough to endure when the backlash arrives. And that's the question for the country uh, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, and obviously that moment was, you know, obviously grounded in tragedy, the, the murder of so many black Americans at the hands of police and others in power. I mean, you write that this national solidarity isn't free, um, both to people who are oppressed and for those who have benefited from white supremacy. How, how do you square that? Yeah. So the one thing that I think more authors are talking about, um, but still needs to get a little bit more daylight, is that structural racism harms everyone. It's not just that the folks who benefit from the status quo are left alone by racism and only those who are marginalized are harmed by it. The entire society is harmed by it because racial inequality and the promise of America, that we have this inherent value and these unalienable rights, those two things can't coexist. They can't touch without bruising. So um, either we make the country a better version of our ideals or we go in the other direction and uh, and recognize that maybe this uh, this these these professed ideals we have are just superficial rhetoric and not not something that we're we're actually after. Um, but but here's the thing: if we try to change the country by just making the moral argument, um, we're we are unlikely to be successful there because a nation state is not a sentient being. You know, it doesn't have. Um, morals that that are an absolute truths and and uh, the sort of unwavering compass that that doesn't move based on what's happening around it. Instead, it's governed by its interests. So things that are interest uh, in the nation's interest today may be against the nation's interest tomorrow, and then the nation will change course. So the goal for those of us who actually want America to live up to its ideals is to marry the moral demand with the interest of the nation. And this is something that the civil rights movement did. This is something that Abraham Lincoln and, um, and Frederick Douglass did over you know, the century and a half ago. Uh, it is trying to make the um, right thing for the country to do um, also be in the nation's interest to do. Often those two things don't align, but when they do, we see tremendous progress, particularly on the question of race. And you, I mean, you're sort of sketching this out here, but I mean, in the book, you lay out this argument that 
one of the models to follow, not necessarily the model, but one model is the model of black solidarity and, 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 and how black Americans have rallied together. And you point out like your own family history. I mean, I've known you for a few years, didn't realize your middle name was Roosevelt. Um, yeah. So, so what is that model that you think we, we could follow as a nation? Right. So, I mean, the book argues that Black America sketches out this, you know, gives us a sense of what a national solidarity could look like. Um, It doesn't argue that Black America exclusively holds the key, but that Black Americans, like many other Americans, Native Americans, uh, immigrants from, you know, white immigrants, as well as, you know, immigrants from from Southeast Asia or the Middle East, um, women, uh, those in the LGBT community, like all these groups that have been marginalized in our democracy, have fought for inclusion. And every group that has made this fight, that, is, that has undertaken this fight, also has lessons for the country. Uh, many of them overlap with the Black experience. And the three that I call out from Black America, I call the first superlative citizenship, uh, which is when people who have been excluded from the full rights and privileges of citizenship still carry out all of the duties of citizenship as a kind of demand that the state adhere to its end of the bargain. This is like ins- enslaved Black people running away from their plantations to join the war to fight for independence or, or the War of 1812. Or this is uh, Black people in uh, living in Jim- the Jim Crow South, um, practicing respectability politics or marching um, sort of... De- demanding access to these constitutional rights as a way of making the nation better, as a way of helping the nation adhere to its ideals. Another uh, I call trickle-down citizenship, and this is uh, a little bit of what I've just discussed, um, which is when um, a group of people don't get access to the full rights and privileges of citizenship um, until their inclusion is in the nation's interest. And so the civil rights movement, the sweeping legislation and judicial rulings and and executive orders we saw between 1948 and 1968, it wasn't because there was this sudden wave of moral epiphanies across white America that says maybe we should stop persecuting black folks. Um, It was because the Cold War was, was on and we had to demonstrate to the world that our democracy was actually inclusive of all its citizens. And so racial progress uh, helped us uh, try to make that argument to the world. And then the last is this social solidarity that black folks have uh, been forced to practice. And social solidarity is the kind of solidarity we would see in a community that has just experienced a natural disaster or in a family or something like that. This, This is a solidarity that results from relationships that you didn't opt into. I didn't choose to be black. I was born this way, but our black experience um, requires me to find solidarity with other black Americans so that the group can do better. Uh, Those folks who have just been hit by a tornado, they didn't choose that. But once they've been devastated by it, they usually come together as a community in solidarity to rebuild. And so Americans have this, too, if we would only leverage it instead of allowing those with power to weaponize it and turn us against one another. So, I mean, you've you've hinted at this and, and maybe it's obvious but what is the risk, in your view, if we fail to achieve solidarity? Yeah, um, it, it's 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 bad, um, but it's not right. civil war bad. Uh, I think uh, there's this sort of alarmist view out there that we're on the path back to a, another version of what we experienced in the 1860s. Um, I believe that structural racism is an existential threat to America. Now, I, the distinction here is that the America that I'm talking about in this declaration is the one of our declaration, the, the America that says we're, we're created equal and we have these unalienable rights and that government derives its power from the consent of the governed. And so if you have structural racism, the kind of racism that um, means based on the group you belong to, your 
experience and your path in America is going to be different for no other reason other than your skin color. That kind of, of society cannot coexist with a society that believes in our equality, in our, in our liberty, in our inherent freedoms. And so if um, we allow structural racism to persist, then that means the idea of America will die. Now, the United States may very well endure. We've shown in our history that we can live alongside rampant racism, like slavery and Jim Crow and hate crimes, et cetera. Uh, but the nation state, if it endures, but it's a nation state that doesn't believe in our inherent equality, that doesn't believe we have these unalienable rights, and instead believes that there's a racial hierarchy, a class hierarchy, and that is the best way to structure our country, then the idea of America dies. And I don't want to live in a country where that idea no longer persists. We've seen what it looks like. Um, I am a black man in 2021, but if I were a black man in 1821, I that's not a world that I ever want to experience, but that's what we risk if the idea of America is something the nation lets go of. You know, we're a, we're a, we're a literary group. <laughs> we, <laughs> we care about books and ideas and free expression. And, and, you know, it seems like, you know, you're, you're talking about a concept like structural racism where, you know, we, we have to come to some kind of consensus about just the, the forces aligned, you know, that, that have, that have sort of kept us from achieving that national ideal. And yet we see, you know, states passing anti-critical race theory bills and mm. saying what teachers can and can't teach. I mean, you know, we school districts pulling books off the shelves. I mean, you know, there's a lot arrayed against your project that you're laying out here. And maybe I've already hit on this a bit, but, you know, what are some of the tactics you think that we can we can pick up to break through? Yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, and a lot of it's because our political identities, our partisan identities have become so entangled in our personal identities. And so now we almost can't have policy discussions without feeling personally attacked, you know, uh, and, right. and, and that is not the way a constructive democracy should operate. Uh, the other thing is um, because of how intertwined our identities are, we, um, we have a different set of facts that we adhere to. And a democracy that where the public can't agree on basic truths is a democracy that get that cannot endure. Uh, so that's that's the second thing. I think the biggest thing, though, is we um, we don't know one another. Uh, we, we are self-segregating. If you look at your Facebook friends or your intimate friends group, more times than not, uh, and this isn't my opinion, this is what all the sociology says, um, those groups are homogenous, homogenous racially, homogenous uh, by class. And while we are having this conversation about race around 1619 Project or critical race theory, we're talking about it with people that are like us instead of talking about it across difference, civilly with respect, but honestly. I think the path forward is instead of talk, instead of one side rebelling against these ugly truths from our history that we have to reckon with, and the other side rejecting the sort of love for country that is that is uncritical. There's a middle ground here, and this is frankly where I hope my book begins to fill some of the space in. We can talk honestly about the shortcomings in our nation, in our nation's history, and today, and recognize that the promise of America is a beautiful thing. And it, it is this promise that folks across our society um, have leveraged the words of the Declaration, the words of the Constitution, in order to make our nation more 
uh, inclusive, more participatory, and hopefully fashion a multiracial egalitarian society. So that we, we can get away from the binaries of your team versus my team, this truth versus this truth, and, and complicate the thing a bit and recognize that there is some ugliness in our past, some shortfalls in our present, but the progress of America is one that's a beautiful story worth telling, and we can tell the whole story and bring people in instead of only telling parts of the story and using that to as, as cudgels against one another. So you just got off writing this book. I know it was a labor of love. You probably had to read a lot. So what are you reading now? Are you are you still steeped in history? Are you are you moving out of genre? Like where, where are you at now with your bedside table reading? Yeah, it's a great question. So I missed a lot of books while right. I was writing my book. <laughs> so I'm doing a little bit of catch up. Uh, so I'm reading uh, the Frederick Douglass biography by David Blight. Um, very good book. Uh, I've, I have finished Obama's book that I felt like I kind of had to read that because everyone else had it. Mm-hmm. But the two books that have kind of been by my bedside most recently, um, one is Thick by Tressie McMillan Cotton. Yeah. Um, I've read it before, but I'm on my third read of it. And I'm reading it again because of the way she uses essays to convey um, both personal story as well as like these truths about our society. And the combination of the two is just really powerful. And so I'm, I'm trying through osmosis to pick up some <laughs> of that, that brilliance. The other is um, Notes on Grief by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, um, who um, talks about the loss of her father. I, I recently lost my mom back in May. And the grieving process is tough. And it's one that I've never really had to experience like this. So her short treatise on the on the grieving process was really helpful for me, both in understanding how universal the feeling is and how very personal, unique, distinct it is um, individually for, for those going through it. So that's kind of where I'm at. A little bit of history, a little bit of sort of sociological commentary and then some some personal work as well. Yeah. Well, Ted Johnson, the book is When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's time for Tough Questions, where we try and answer the trickiest questions about free speech from the past week. Joining me now to do so is PEN America CEO, Suzanne Nossel. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. So, Suzanne, I want to start with uh, Belarus. Um, this week, that country marked a year since a rigged election cemented authoritarian President Alexander Lukashenko's ongoing grip on power. On that very same day that the country was marking that anniversary, a court in the country obliterated our sister organization, Penn Belarus. What's your reaction? It's profoundly disturbing. Look, we're seeing authoritarianism widening its reach worldwide, and our sister organizations in in places like Myanmar, Hong Kong, uh, Afghanistan coming under tremendous pressure. The situation in Belarus is somewhat unique for us in that Penn Belarus has been so specifically targeted and actually shut down. And it, it, you know, it speaks to the influence of writers of principle, uh, the president Svetlana Alexeyevich and her global profile that this you know, literary organization is construed as so threatening that they've initiated a, a court case and demanded its eradication. So 
it's a profoundly disturbing moment. What is inspiring and I think heartening for all of us is to see just the iron will of the writers and participants in Penn Belarus, uh, you know, while the, the Belarusian government may de be declaring this organization extinct, the reality is far different. And there is a profound commitment on the part of those associated with the effort who are, you know, in different stages of adjustment to these circumstances and, and, and struggling to protect themselves, uh, some cases in country, in some cases, uh, entering into exile around the world, but they are fiercely determined that these efforts will not be shut down, that they will mount a resistance, that they will continue to stand up for principles of open expression. And so that is, you know, quite inspiring from my perspective. It's uh, definitely a fierce stance. And, you know, what is sort of notable about the pen movement is that we work in country with these centers, but we also have this global network. And so, you know, at a time when it's not possible to work in country, we can work globally where we can't support writers, uh, you know, who are active within their systems, we can support them in exile. And so the work for us doesn't end, it just shifts gears. And we're, we're very determined to see it through. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to the U.S. Uh, after months of debate, a school district outside of Austin this week moved to strike even more books from its school reading lists. Uh, many of these works deal with sexuality, race, gender identity. How are these bans, not just in Leander, Texas, but similar bans around the country, uh, impacting the ability of students to learn? You know, book bans are sort of such a old school method of repression of freedom of expression. I remember when I first came to Penn and learned that the organization was doing work on book bans, it seemed anachronistic to me. I mean, I thought back to things like Lady Chatterley's Lover or Lolita from decades ago. Uh, and, and what I learned was that book bans are alive and well and that they move with the culture. They tend to crop up as a battleground in connection with culture wars. So when there are debates over how to grapple with racial equality, with LGBTQ identities, with gender differences, you know, those battles play out in the realm of children's literature. And there's this very deep seated notion that children need to be protected and shielded from ideas that may be challenging, that may not comport with their parents value system that may be upsetting or confusing. And you know, our philosophy at Penn is that that's the exact wrong approach, that children need to be exposed to a wide range of ideas, that children's literature is a very useful and appropriate vehicle for allowing kids to come to grips with issues of difference, with controversial questions that they may grapple with later in life. It can be done through storytelling and narrative. And, you know, it offers a kind of uh, respectful, comfortable place for people to begin to be introduced to some of these more complex ideas that all of us have to confront in society. And so the notion of book bans to expunge these ideas and, and portrayals and identities from the classroom is disturbing and, you know, it, it is of a piece with this rising trend of just being willing, people willing to throw principle to the wind, abandon all fealty to free 
expression and the First Amendment, uh, you know, in the name of pushing back against what they see as, you know, change that's happening too fast or lifestyles that they don't want to endorse. We see that in uh, the movement in state houses to ban critical race theory. And, you know, another version of that in this uh, set of bans of this battle in Leander, Texas. And, you know, it's been inspiring to see so many authors stand up for their work and stand up for one another and hopefully kind of call this out and prove it to be what it is, which is just straightforward censorship. Absolutely. Well, let's end uh, with the uh, coronavirus, which uh, continues to rear its head in the form of the Delta variant. Uh, and in that, in turn, has led to a new wave of misinformation online. The New York Times reported this week that that comes after we saw some false claims online actually abate uh, a bit this spring. Uh, Facebook, in particular, seems to be falling behind and stemming the tide. What more can digital platforms do to protect the public at this point? Yeah, look, it's a complicated problem. It's multifaceted. You know, we have, unfortunately, you know, prominent governors and state legislators who have, you know, bought hook, line and sinker into misinformation about the vaccine or these vaccine questioning postures that are, you know, lending to just tremendous surges in the spread of COVID in certain parts of the country and illness and death. And so it's quite terrifying. Facebook and other social media platforms have an important role to play. Uh, you know, one of the complex issues is that while most of them, including Facebook, have banned sort of directly harmful mis and disinformation. So, for example, you know, a statement that uh, children can't get COVID or that masks don't work uh, or that the vaccine is ineffective. You know, that counts as disinformation and breaches the rules on a platform like Facebook, but something that's broader uh, or more ambiguous, for example, questioning the efficacy of vaccines, uh, you know, is considered part of legitimate debate. And it's, a, you know, it's a difficult line to draw. For example, right now we have a debate about boosters. And so, you know, some people will say boosters are, ne are necessary. Others would argue that they aren't. Uh, you know, at what point does it become disinformation in the absence of definitive studies on a lot of this stuff, that is a, a difficult line to draw. I think the most important thing for Facebook is to make sure that they really are proactively policing the categories of content that are demonstrably falsifiable, that uh, you know, are proven to be uh, inconsistent with the science and inconsistent with expert opinion and really looking at how those are moving across the platform. They should be offering far greater transparency to researchers who want to track the impact of this information, track how people actually act on this information. You know, what do they do next when they uh, come across a piece of mis or disinformation? And, you know, the work that they've done in promoting the vaccine, you know, I think has shown some degree of efficacy, but are there ways that that could be stepped up dramatically? Uh, and, you know, what kind of investment would that take? So I hope that is taken Seriously, I think Facebook and other social media platforms have an essential role to play, but that this problem of vaccine reticence is, uh, you know, one that's going to require political leadership as well. And it's become, unfortunately, deeply politicized, which, uh, you know, poses challenges for those who are in positions of leadership trying to advocate sound policy, but also not play into these very sharp political divisions and, you know, inadvertently 
lead to a kind of backfiring where the anti-vax sentiment is only intensified. Yeah, well, we'll leave it there. Suzanne Nossel is CEO of PEN America. Her book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All, is now out in paperback. Thanks a lot, Suzanne. Thanks, Stephen. And that's our episode for Friday, August 13th. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you soon.